Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 to 3 and then move directly to verses 32 to 37. The Israelites confess their sins. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those Israelite descendants had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Now therefore, O God, the great and mighty awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the day of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just, You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or warnings that you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them, in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. What um, would you say are the hardest three words to say? Hardest three words to say. What do you reckon they are? Yes, Mick. I am sorry. I am sorry, that's right. I'm sorry or I was wrong. Um, can be very hard, can't it, to, to say these words. This last week, um, Man City lost to Everton. don't know how many Man City fans there are here this morning, but... Um, Their manager, Roberto Mancini, appeared to accept it was his fault. Uh, This is what he said. He said, the players put everything on the pitch, but I made some mistakes during the last three days preparing for this game. I didn't prepare very well. For this reason, we lost this game. At this point, you're thinking, oh, it's very honest, very uh, contrite. Um, Ah, of course, he hasn't quite finished yet. But I also feel we didn't deserve it because they had two chances to score and we were so unlucky in the same situation. Why is it we find it so hard to admit that we were wrong without coming up with some sort of excuse to to defend our actions? Is it because it's uh, an admission of weakness, uh, of a mistake which will somehow lower people's opinions of us? Is it because we're afraid of the, the consequences? Is it maybe because our pride just blinds us to our mistakes? Or is it because actually we don't really care if we did something wrong anyway, because, well, as long as it didn't hurt anybody. Because the difference, actually, between the the attitude of the world towards the need for confession and forgiveness 
and the attitude of Christians towards forgiveness is that for the world you only need to seek the forgiveness of the person or the persons you've wronged. And if you haven't caused any harm to anybody else, then actually, well, it's not really a problem. But for the Christian, all sin is an offence not only against a person, but against God. The wonderful thing, though, as we will see from this passage, is that God is a forgiving God. He's gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in love. We've come to chapter 9 in our series on Nehemiah, which is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But more importantly, it's about rebuilding the spiritual life of the people of God. We've seen them give their time, their, their energy to this project. We've seen God help them overcome their fear of opposition. We've seen them address issues internally of, of injustice and lack of compassion towards their fellow countrymen. And last week, having completed the walls, we looked at how the Jews listened attentively and how they submitted themselves to the word of God. And there were these mixed emotions of mourning, weeping, and rejoicing, celebrating. Mourning because the people realised their sin, their weakness, but rejoicing because although they were powerless to do anything about it, they knew they had a God who was strong enough to help them, who was gracious towards them. As we come on to, to chapter 9 this morning, the first verse there, we are told that on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Why this, uh, this performance? Why this sackcloth and ashes? Is it some awful sin that they've got to confess? Well, no, it's a sign of their remorse, a sign of their inner repentance, the sorrow they feel in their hearts. They've come to confess their sins and they've come to confess the sins of their ancestors. And before they do that, in verse 3, it says, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. And most of uh, chapter 9 is a prayer. It's probably one of the longest prayers uh, in the Bible And the prayer begins, like all great prayers, with worship and adoration, focusing on God. You may think, well, why not just get straight into the confession, get it all out, you know, confess those sins. Because the more we are aware of God, the more we are aware of our sin. You may recall the words of Isaiah, the prophet, when he had a vision of God. This is what he cried out. He cried out, woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or the disciple Peter, Peter when he realises that uh, Jesus is actually the Son of God. The Bible tells us he falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I wonder when the last time was he came to God in an attitude of contrition, and confessed your sins to him. Why is it so important to confess our sins? I want to give you four reasons this morning. And the first of those is that sin is an offence against God. It is a rejection of all that God has done for us. And the praise that is given to God in this prayer highlights all that he has done. And in in so doing, it just emphasises how outrageous is our rejection of him. 
For example, it is a rejection of the fact, if you look at verse 6, that God has given us life. Let's have a look at verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God gave each one of us life in the first place. And whatever family situation you were born into, God knits you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We owe our existence to him. He made the universe. You know, it's impossible for our limited minds to, to grasp the size of the universe, the billions of stars and galaxies out there. We can understand a little bit more about the planet we live on, and thanks to scientists, thanks to technology, thanks to uh, the patience of, of cameramen. We are understanding more and more. I don't know whether you watch them, these programs of uh, planet Earth or human planets, frozen planet Earth. They're fascinating. I would though recommend you don't do it when you're feeling a little bit tired. I don't know what it is about the voice of David Attenborough, but uh, I do find myself sometimes drifting off a little bit. But watch them when you're alert and awake, and they're fascinating. The last, latest one, I think, is Earth flights. The view of the world from, the, the, the view from a bird flying over. It's incredible what they do, their whole behaviour. The more we understand the intricacy of creation and God's creatures, the more we are full of admiration for our God. And one of the common ways of rejecting God is to say that, well, actually, we just came into being by chance. Or it doesn't really matter where we came from. It doesn't really matter where the world came from. Let's just get on and enjoy life. Sin is an offence against God because it rejects the fact that he gave us life. And secondly, God's generosity enables us to enjoy life. Other than the Lord and God, in, in this passage, the most common words that keep coming up are gave, gave and land. And we've really mentioned that God gave us life, but let's look quickly at some of the other things that he gave us in this passage. Turn over the, the page to verse 15. In their hunger, talking about their ancestors, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Well, verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. And verse 25, I think, sums up God's generosity. Have a look there. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. God gave them so much, and he continues to give us so much today. And yes, we may be in a recession, but we are still well nourished. We still revel in God's great goodness to, to us. But how often do we thank him for it? How often do we actually just take it for granted? How easy do we find it to get upset about things we don't have than to thank God for his great goodness to us? I think one of the thing, hardest things about being a parent uh, in today's society in the West um, is the fact that children have so much and yet are so ungrateful for it and want even more. But I think the same applies to us as well, doesn't it? Sin is an offence against God because it doesn't acknowledge 
his generosity, that he's the source of all good things that we enjoy. And finally, sin is an offence against God because God has given us good instructions for life. Have a look at verse 13 there. You gave them, them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. Not that you oppress them by imposing dictatorial rules on them. You made their life a misery. You restricted their freedom. Not you didn't help them understand how to live life to the full. No, because verse 20 it says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. And the reason the people have gathered here and read the book of the law of God is to better understand these laws that God has given them for them to enjoy life. And yet as humans, we still prefer to make up our own rules. We still think that we know what is best. We think we know how we're going to get the most out of life. How arrogant is that? God designed us. He knows what is best for us. And sin is an offence against him when we ignore his good instructions for us. Well, confession then is important because it acknowledges that we have offended God. And secondly, because we are all sinful human beings who need God's forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness. Sin is not only an offence against God, it causes our relationship with God to be broken. And when we talk about sin, it's, it's normally in the sense of our personal relationship with God, our individual sin. But it's interesting, this passage is very much about a corporate sin. The, the people are confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they go through in this chapter 9, we didn't read all of it, um, because it would have taken quite a while, but they go through the whole history of Israel, recalling how their ancestors were disobedient. And it's pretty brutal language. It doesn't try and gloss over it. It doesn't come up with excuses. It tells it for what it is. Just have a look at some of this. Uh, have a look at verse 16. They're just describing how much the people have received from God. But, it says in verse 16, but they became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. And this is not just a one-off incident, it carries on. You gave them so much they lacked for nothing, but look at verse 26. They were disobedient, they rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And this time God uh, allows them to be delivered into the hands of their enemies. But when they cried out, he rescued them. But again, verse 28, as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. He warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. How many times do these words stiff-necked, or arrogant, or stubborn keep coming up? It's a people who thought they knew what was best. But here comes a surprising thing, because where does it look like this is all going? You remember their situation? They're undergoing a pretty tough time. They're, they're still under the rule of the Persians. You know, they're producing land, they're crops from the land. 
But they're all going to Persia. They're paying high taxes to Persia. They're effectively a colony. And so far, they've been confessing the sins of their ancestors. And where it looks like it is going is, weren't they awful? But what did we do to deserve this hardship that we're experiencing? That's what it looks like it is going towards. And that's what people normally do, isn't it? Find somebody else to blame. Find a scapegoat. Blame your parents. Blame your lack of parents. Blame your your education. Blame the government. That's always an easy target, isn't it? But then look at verse 33, which is what Caroline read out. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. While we did wrong. Just as our ancestors were disobedient, so were we. Just as they rebelled against you, so have we. Just as they became stiff-necked, so have we. It is tremendously honest. What makes them able to be honest and confess their sins in this way? Well, the answer is the reason, another reason why confession is so important. It's because God is a forgiving God. God is a forgiving God. Each time the Israelites confess the sins of their ancestors, it is followed by reassurance of God's mercy. Have a look at verse 17. after it talks about them refusing to listen, it's actually the end of that verse. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Or verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. Verse 28, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. As human beings, we cannot fully comprehend how someone can forgive somebody else time after time. Yes, we understand forgiveness. But often I think we think of forgiveness in the sense of, well, I'll give them another chance. If they don't mess up again, um, okay. But if he gets it wrong again, then, you know, that's, that's their problem. And Peter, remember the disciple, uh, asked Jesus, he said to him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he goes, up to seven times? And it's almost as though he's saying, look at me, I can forgive somebody seven times. I bet nobody else could do that. But Jesus says to him, look, not seven times, 77 times. There's no limit to the number of times you should forgive somebody because there's no limit to the number of times I will forgive you. Now, you may be someone here this morning who's thinking, there was no way that God would forgive me. You know, what I've done is just, is just so bad. Or I've just done it so many times. You know, I'll keep asking for forgiveness it's going to come at times when he runs out of being able to forgive me. God will not run out of patience with us. He abounds in love. And the issue is whether we are prepared to ask him for forgiveness. And if you haven't done that already, then what is stopping you? What is stopping you saying to God, actually, God, I was wrong. I did reject you as the one who 
gave me life, as the one who has given me so much to enjoy, as the one who gave me instructions for living. I am sorry. But thank you that Jesus died on my behalf so that I don't need to go to hell. So that I might be forgiven. Please forgive me. Help me to follow him as my Lord and my Saviour. The reason we can confess with confidence is because God is a merciful God who accepts everybody who comes to him. Well, finally, it is important, even if we are already Christians, to confess because it demonstrates, at the end of the day, what the gospel is all about. Do you find it surprising that in God's word, in his description of his chosen people, we have this account, which is actually pretty ugly, isn't it? It doesn't ask you the question, why are they confessing so openly the sins of their ancestors and their own sins? What, is, what are other countries going to think of them when they, they hear this? Surely if you've got skeletons in the cupboard, you're going to keep them there. You know, you're not going to wash your dirty laundry in public. And we may think today, surely if we want to witness for Christ, we need to show how good we are to those outside the church. That's surely how we will win people for Christ. But no, that is how you will turn people away from Christ. Because people know that we, like anybody else, are not perfect. They know we make mistakes just like anybody else. They see them. Do you know what the most common perception of Christians is by non-churchgoers? That they're judgmental and that they're hypocritical. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because often what they see is Christians who are trying to live a good life, but failing. And rather than admitting their failures, they cover them up. Have you ever had somebody say to you, well, I'm actually quite surprised at you. I thought you were a Christian, but, you know, I didn't think Christians gossiped about anybody else. Or I didn't think Christians uh, got drunk. And what's your immediate reaction? Maybe a sense of guilt and, yeah, well, I wasn't really gossiping, you know, I didn't really mean it, or... I didn't really get drunk, you know, I just had a couple, I knew what I was doing. If we actually said, yeah, no, you are right, I shouldn't have done that. And that's actually why I'm a Christian, because I know I'm a failure, I know that, but God loves me so much that he's still willing to forgive me, however many times I mess up. To be honest about our failures is a witness because it is pointing to the mercy of God. And that is what the gospel is all about, the mercy of God. It's not about giving the impression that we are perfect when we know we are not. Jesus was more critical than those of those who were guilty of pride and arrogance than those who were moral failures. And if we're going to rid ourselves of that pride and that arrogance, we need to start by confessing our sins to one another. After all, James 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. In Acts 19, in the account of the early church, it describes how many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And I know many of you have got prayer partners or people you read the Bible with together, and if you haven't um, and you'd like to, let me know and I can uh, try and fix you up with somebody. And in those twos and threes, pray for each other, pray for your needs, but also confess your sins to each other, hold each other accountable. With those outside the church, we can be honest about our failings. 
but use it as an opportunity to share the gospel, that you know you have a saviour who will forgive you your sins. Of course, confession, asking forgiveness is no good on its own. It needs to go alongside repentance, a decision in God's power to change your ways. And so the passage ends in verse 38 with the people making this binding agreement, putting it in writing, and the leaders affixing their seals to it, our equivalent of putting a signature to it, saying, I'm serious about this.